Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. So glad to be with you guys. It's, I know it's been uh, actually a few weeks since we've been able to put out a podcast, and so many of you guys have been wondering, hey, what happened to the podcast? So I do apologize about that. But as many of you know, we have some great, exciting news. For the last year and a half, we've been developing two new books with Baker Books and also with Tyndale House. So Challenging Conversations is going to be coming out this fall. So we just finished the final manuscript the final draft, and it's going to print. So I'll be getting advanced copies of that. We're going to be launching, we're excited about this, we're going to be launching some book clubs ahead of the book actually coming out in October. So I will be letting you guys know, one, how you can get a hold of an advanced copy, two, maybe perhaps you can join some of the book clubs that we're going to be offering, and I'll be interacting through different webinars, uh, live chatting, uh, live streaming, different ways that we're going to be engaging a lot of our readers as we continue to grow uh, challenging conversations, not just in your family, in, in your personal life, but also in the life of the church. So we're excited about that. So it's one reason why we haven't been able to get the studio to record the podcast. So I'm so sorry, but I am excited to be jumping back into Acts with you guys as we're beginning Acts chapter 8 today. Also, we just turned in the final manuscript of a second book called Parenting Gen Z with Focus on the Family in Tyndale. And so that'll be coming out next year, but we just turned in the first draft. So it's been a lot of studying, research, and writing and editing, as you can imagine, but been blessed with so many great colleagues and professionals who've helped me along the way. So those are going to be two great resources. So again, I'll be letting you guys know when those things do unfold and they come out, and and especially when it comes to challenging conversations, how you can get your advanced copy. So with that being said, I'm finally back and glad to be and excited to be with you guys. So let's jump into Acts chapter 8. Now, as always, if you've missed any previous podcasts, you can always go to standstrongministries.org. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you don't know about our videos, we started to record videos in the studio for the podcast on my YouTube channel, Jason, middle initial P for Philip Jimenez. You can go to Stanstrom Ministries when you click on podcast. We also have a link there with the landing page that leads to the video. So it's just another way of us growing this platform and engaging our listenership. So take advantage of that. Take, take the notes on the website the videos, and however you listen to your podcast. That's there for you. Because as you know, the heartbeat, the purpose for this podcast, the reason why we do this is to help you grow strong in your faith. For you, as the as the, the podcast name is, to stand strong in the Word of God because we believe that when Christians know what the Bible teaches, when you are letting the Word of God speak to you every day of your life, it will cause your faith to grow tremendously. That has been true in my life. We believe the teachings of scripture that says that it will profit you. It will equip you. It will prepare you. It will give you wisdom. It will give you insight. It will give you counsel. So as we go into Acts chapter eight today, we're going to be introduced by an individual that many people don't know much about. And there's not a lot about him, but what we see here in Acts chapter eight is an amazing person. His name is Philip. He's a deacon. And if you remember, you go back to Acts chapter six, and there were seven deacons that were 
raised up to do the work that the apostles could not do. And one of those men was Stephen. We saw him in Acts chapter 7, the last time we had, we recorded the, the episode, you know, the last episode that we recorded in the book of Acts. But he was killed. Well, now we're introduced to the other deacon that was also mentioned in Acts chapter 6, along with Stephen, and his name is Philip. We're going to see some incredible things that he did. Now, just to bring you up to speed, the focus, member for the first seven chapters is about the gospel spreading into Jerusalem. Now we're seeing in chapters 8 through 12, we're going to be seeing the next few episodes here on the podcast, a shifting from Jerusalem now into Judea and to Samaria. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, God said, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria and to the outer, to the greater extension of the world. So this is happening. So if you have a Bible, whatever you're doing right now, or you can just listen, but let's jump into Acts chapter eight, beginning in verse one. Now notice here, Saul approved of the execution. Now the execution here is of Stephen's. Stephen was martyred. He was put to death. And what we see here in verses one to three is that Saul persecutes the early Christians. So it was not enough just to kill Stephen what he had to do now is to continue to ramp up, if you will, the persecution. So notice here in verse 1, Luke refers to this rising up. There arose, he says, on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So remember, Saul was a significant figure. He was a member in the Sanhedrin, and he was a primary leader who they raised up to try to eradicate the church. He mentions that later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22, verses 19 through 20. And although Peter and John had received public beatings, and they were persecuted, and yes, they did rejoice. You see this in Acts 4, 1 through 3, 5, verse 40. It was actually the martyrdom of Stephen that causes this mighty transition of the gospel to spread beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And that still, my friend, is the case today, that when Satan tries to use persecution to silence the church, to silence the gospel, that they no longer preach in the name of Jesus Christ, or they try to burn Bibles, or they try to eradicate Christians that are meeting in the privacy of their homes or the underground church that we oftentimes label them as, it doesn't stop the gospel from spreading. And we see that early on here, this great persecution that arises. Now, what's fascinating is what Luke does here is notice as he contrasts these godly men, like the apostles, like the deacons, and these devout men who buried Stephen. We don't know who these people were, but notice as a Jew, to leave your body exposed and not for burial shows the utter con uh, contempt that you have for this individual. They hated Stephen. They didn't even bother burying him. So these devout men bury Stephen. But what we see though is the rising of these great men and women of God. And then you have this rise of persecution by the hand of Saul against the newfound Christians who are putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What's also significant though is obviously as Luke is recording these things, and of course he's now with Paul. So he's going back and he's he's talking about Saul who was not a Christian. And later in life, the last epistle that Paul writes before he's beheaded, he himself is killed like Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7. Notice what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 15. Listen to how he describes himself. 
He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then in verse 15, refers to himself as a chief of sinners. So when you look at the state right now here in Acts chapter 8, Saul's lost. Now, of course, when you look in Philippians 3, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a tribe of Benjamin. He was a zealot. This guy was studied, he studied under Gamaliel. He was highly regarded, highly respected, very wealthy, had all these dual citizenships. People admired and loved Saul, Saul of Tarsus. But yet his description was he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent man. This guy was an opponent against Jesus. He was fighting against Jesus. And you and I know it's it's not going to last. Whatever you do, you keep fighting as Jesus would tell him in Acts chapter nine, you're fighting against the goats. What are you doing? You will not be able to win this battle. And you see this amazing radical conversion that took place with Saul who becomes Paul the apostle. And so they scattered throughout the regions because of this persecution. And because of that, many of these Christians were going into Judea and Samaria. And what's interesting is that many of these people who were a part of this persecution, you go back to Acts chapter four, verse four, they were Hellenistic Christians. And they fled from Jerusalem, except for the apostles were told because the apostles remained in Jerusalem because they believed as God called them to do that, I will give you power. You'll be my witnesses all over the world. And so they're not afraid to leave the heart of where the persecution is taking place because God will protect them. And of course he did. And even though that they were eventually martyred, many of them, doesn't mean that God's hand of protection was lifted from them. God allowed that to happen because of their boldness and because through the blood of the saints, as one of the church fathers would later say, was the seeds of the rise of the churches throughout the world. And this intensity of persecution was not just focusing on the apostles and people that were leading in the synagogues and coming to faith, as you see in the day of Pentecost, but also we're told by Luke, it included women. So that shows you the magnitude of this persecution of how they are quickly trying to silence followers of Jesus, not just men, but also the women. So now we pick things up here in verse four through eight, where where Deacon Philip, he preaches the gospel in Samaria. It says here, now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. That literally means, therefore, on the other hand, that Philip went to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits and, and, and crying out with loud voices came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So here we see right off the bat is that it was not a strategic diplomacy for the gospel to spread beyond Jerusalem. It was the intense persecution, the disruption that they faced that would cause the gospel to spread. Now, of course, Saul and his crew were hoping that the persecution was going to silence these Christ followers when in fact, of course, we know that it didn't. Philip comes, he comes down to the city of Samaria. So he's in higher elevation. He comes down to Samaria Herod the Great, remember, renamed this place Sebasti, and he proclaims the Christ. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Philip was one of the seven original deacons in Acts chapter 6, verse 3 and verse 5. He was a Grecian Jew who went into Samaria, and more specifically from the urban center of Neapolis of Shechem, and he proclaims the Christ to Samaritans. He's telling them about Jesus. Now, remember in John 4, Jesus went to the Samaritan woman. 
she repents of her sin. She goes and proclaims Christ. They come out, they hear Jesus, and many of them believed beyond her own testimony. So what has happened in this region since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, Philip is now going. He's telling them a lot of the news about Jesus that they were not aware of. Now, remember the Samaritans, they were half Jews that came after Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., This points to the barrier being broken between Jews and Samaritans by God sending Philip into this region because the Jews didn't have a monopoly on Christ's teachings. Christ died for all mankind. His teachings were for everybody. And so Philip comes and Luke doesn't mention how he was able to build rapport, but notice in one accord, they paid attention. This is unheard of. For Samaritans listen to a Grecian Jew, and, and then they see the power that comes from him of cle- cleansing people of, their, of, of unclean spirits as they're crying out, and he's exercising these demons out of people. People who are paralyzed and lame were also healed. So it wasn't just the apostles who were doing miracles, but Philip here as a deacon was also committing these amazing miracles. And remember, he was doing work that was a continuation of Christ's ministry in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, and also with the the work of the apostles. And I love this in verse eight, where it says, so there was much joy in that city. So as he was proclaiming Christ, healing them and exercising them with demons, Luke makes mention of this word joy, because you and I know when Christ comes into your life, if you remember your testimony, my friends, you see this beautiful picture of joy that's coming out. Demons are being cast out. People who have been distraught, who've been tormented, who've been in pain, they've been delivered. They have peace. They have joy. He says this in Luke, or excuse me, in Acts 5, 41, 8, 39, 13, 52, 16, 34, 34. So joy is a big description that Luke uses. But then we're told in verse nine that Simon the sorcerer, he hears about uh, this giftedness, if you will. And he wants to know about this Jesus. We pick things up here now in verse nine, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in name of of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands by the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the power of the Holy Spirit. So the interesting thing here that we see um, is that here, Simon, the sorcerer, he's believing in the name of Jesus. Now, this this term where it says that he who had previously practiced, it's presumably by invoking supernatural power. So Simon, the sorcerer, he had this magic ability. We don't know to what degree. Luke doesn't describe exactly what it is, but he had he was able to 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 draw people in in the city, and they were amazed by some of his actions, even to the point where many people were actually declaring him to be God. 
Now, remember, Greek magic was was popular in Samaria at this time and also in Judea and elsewhere. So when Philip comes into this region, notice he's casting out a lot of demons. There's a lot of people who were unclean and you know had unclean spirits in them and that were defiled and they were sick because of the torment that was going on. But as people, uh, you know, were gravitating towards a lot of the Jewish leaders of the day because they were close to God and by being close to them, they felt that you could be close to them as well. But they also wanted to be close to people like Simon the Sorcerer, who was this great magician, who was this great God, this great deity. Perhaps some people believe that he came from heaven, you know, or from, he was a deity from the, from, from the stars above. And he was able to tune in and have uh, the ability to speak directly to people divinely. And so a lot of this magic that you see that Simon had was causing people to uh, be confused now because they're thinking, well, he has power, but then this guy Philip has power. But then Simon the sorcerer hears about Philip's power and is drawn to hear about Philip. But I want to read again the remaining of this passage in verse 20 because when Peter says to him, Simon sorcerer, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bound of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the reason why that I went back to finish this thing out, because I want to take the whole passage here regarding Simon the Sorcerer, because there's a lot of commentaries. And I remember even years ago talking to um, a, a very devout uh, Christian who was, who was a student of God's word. And he was very confused with this passage because of the terminology that's used in association with Simon the sorcerer. But then we see what Peter says to him in return says, so the question is, was Simon a legitimate Christian or was he not? Well, let's break it down uh, if, 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 if we can. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, Simon was this legendary person that people were attracted to. Now, later reports, okay, I'm going to throw this out here. Later reports have Simon launching a Gnostic movement of Simonians that attacked the Christian church in Rome. So there are some scholars who believe that Simon the Sorcerer, Simon Magus, the great magician, is later mentioned in church history. Um, I tend to think that this is, in fact, him that was that's mentioned outside the realm of the Book of Acts, and that 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 he was a part of the growth of the of of some Gnostic movement. Which, again, I say that up front because I don't believe that he was actually a legitimate Christian here. When it says that the crowd in verse ten had paid attention, meaning they are firmly believing in Philip, but what about obviously Simon? Was he a, a genuinely a follower um, of of God? Now, up to this point. People believed he was a representative, a chief representative of God or some kind of a deity. Well, he's willing to exchange that because he sees Philip's powers far greater. And so he wants to receive, uh, in this case, in the verse 12, it says, believe, the Greek word is pesteo, that's worthy of being trusted, Philip, as he preached the gospel. The interesting thing about this word believe for the, the, in context of Simon was that he he believed it to be true because it was undeniable. The people believed the gospel, they repented and were baptized in the name of Christ. And the miracles that were performed by Philip and the power that he did in proclaiming the gospel, it, it, it made Simon's sorcery look like kids play. And so 
he realized that. The people knew that. So the same word, pisteo, where they're being trusted, Simon has that same belief as the people had in verse 12. But here's the catch. He wasn't denying it. He was not saying it's not true. He wasn't questioning it. He instantly was drawn to it, but for the wrong reasons. You see, Simon didn't believe in the actual gospel message like the people did in verse 12. How do we know that? Because notice he believed in the fact that the power Philip exercised came from a mighty miracle worker, Jesus Christ, leaving his magic, if you will, being exposed as an imposter. And he didn't like that. He wanted greater power. So he felt if he believed in this, if he followed Philip, that he would become like this miracle work in a greater way, like Jesus Christ. Now notice it says in verse 14, now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received, meaning accept or welcome the information, they were going to come out there. And there's a lot of speculation as to what what does this mean here that Luke was replying, referring to about the Holy Spirit. They had yet not to receive the Holy Spirit and the apostles had to come out. Well, remember, there was a lot of tension between Samaritans and Jews, number one. Number two, the gospel hadn't spread to this point. And so they, you needed to have some apostolic oversight. And so the apostolic council, you know, in, in wisdom, wanted to dispatch Peter and John in order to authenticate what was taking place by the hand of Philip among the Samaritan people, knowing again that this place was filled with demons, filled with sorcery, and having half Jews and how they distorted the scriptures. And, 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 and which leads me to this other thing about why they had yet to receive the Holy Spirit, a possible explanation as Philip preached the gospel of Christ, I mean, even were being baptized, but the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them yet. A possible explanation for the delay of the Holy Spirit may have to do with making sure the people didn't mistake God's work with sorcery and also to bring apostolic oversight to confirm the conversions and the expansion of the church. We have, you and I have to realize as we're looking into this text, again, with Simon's false conversion right now and with many people who are getting saved and being baptized, now we, you and I know salvifically one cannot be saved without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, so there are a... There's two things going on here. One sense, this this term might receive the Holy Spirit is in reference to salvation, that many of them were believing, but things had yet not taken place in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for whatever reason. Another uh, interpretation is that um, that some received Christ, but then others didn't receive Christ. So there were some that the Holy Spirit fell upon and there's some that that didn't. And I don't really like that. Because I think if that was the case, then um, Luke would have mentioned it. But this phrase, for he had not yet fallen regarding the Holy Spirit, the wording used by Luke carries the idea of the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon the Samaritans in a powerful way. So it leads me back to my first explanation. I believe that the people who were baptized were already saved in the Holy Spirit and dwelt them because you can't be saved again without the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians, you know, we see that in in in, uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter one, verses uh, twelve through fourteen, about the the Holy Spirit sealing us until the day of redemption, and that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians six nineteen and twenty. What I believe Luke was referring to here is that the Holy Spirit had come upon them in a powerful way to move in great works, like he was doing, you know, to some extent, like he with with the deacon Philip. 
And so that's why the apostles were dispatched because it says here in verse 17, then they lay their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That Now the word here received, remember they believed, they entrusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but now receiving the Holy Spirit was to take, to accept, to grasp an object. So I believe that's the power of saying, we want to, we, we, we are in, the Holy Spirit is in us and now we want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the act of laying on the hands by Peter and John caused the Holy Spirit to manifest himself in a mighty and powerful way. So Luke doesn't go in great detail. Maybe it was an earthquake like we saw in the upper room. Maybe the Holy Spirit was speaking to them in a special way. Maybe they're speaking in tongues. Maybe several of them started to perform miracles. We don't know. But this doesn't imply the Samaritans were converted because they had already received the gospel message and were baptized. They were saved, but now the Holy Spirit is coming to them on a special way. Now go back to Simon the Sorcerer. This is like the third lead in now to him. When he saw this, remember he was baptized, but that was a false conversion. When he saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the hands of the apostles, he offered them money saying, give me this power so that I may receive the Holy Spirit and do these things. So he's like, I'll go out there and do the things you guys are doing. Well, these actions of Simon clearly portray that he never truly believed in Jesus Christ as his Savior. He was a con and attempted to take advantage of Peter and John and exploit the power of the Holy Spirit with money and bribery. My friend, by the way, before I go any further, there are a lot of people like that. And we get confused because we think that somebody who's not a Christian who maybe is possessed with a demon, they're, they're demonized by several demons, that they cannot say Jesus is Lord. Like they can't even verbally say that. Well, the scripture nowhere says that they can't say that. What it's saying, and when you go to 1 John chapter 2 in the reference to that, they, they don't believe it with all their heart, okay? They don't have that firm belief and assurance and certainty that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and they accept it and they need a savior. They believe, like the, when the demons believe and they tremble in James 2.19, they acknowledge that that Jesus is the top dog, if you will. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. But they reject him as that. They don't follow him as that. And so Simon, he thinks that he can get his hands on this and he wants to purchase the Holy Spirit as a magical thing. Now, Peter's open rebuke proves that Simon falsely claimed to receive Christ again. So it's another evidence that points to the fact that Simon was not a Christian. So some some commentaries say he was. I emphatically disagree with that. His greed is reflective. Remember, if you go back to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he tells him, repent because of the wickedness of yours and pray to God, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. That literally means full of poison and the bond of iniquity. Basically, he's pointing out that you are just a fallen sinful person who needs to be saved. So Peter discerned that Simon was not only an imposter, but a man full of sinfulness and bitterness. Here, all these people came to him for answers, right? They, all these people, oh, Simon the Great, Simon the Magician, and people found solace in him. And yet Simon was the most lost and confused soul of them all. And I want to point out one significant thing, I think in terms of application that we take from this before I go any further. We have to be careful, my friend, who we turn to to find refuge, who we turn to to find security or to find advice, to get advice from, I should say. There are a lot of people who are televangelists, people that you can read a book or you can turn them on TV or they're all over social media and they're false teachers. 
They are lost souls, and yet people turn to them thinking that they have all the answers when they don't. Simon was an imposter. Peter called him out. And notice in verse 24, Simon answered them, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me, which is another indication why we know Simon was not a Christian. Notice the fear and the utter despair that he was in. If what church documents say about Simon and Gnosticism is true, as I said earlier, that there's reports that he started a Gnostic movement, then Simon's merely trying to diffuse the situation by pleading for a ritualized prayer. Literally, when I looked at it in Greek, it carries this idea that he was saying, pray for me, meaning give me a spell or an incantation to protect me from this curse. So he was then taking Peter's words as a curse on his own life. And then verse 25 says, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the evangelization of the gospel in Samaria continues to expound in great ways, again, fulfilling Acts chapter 1, verse 28. So now we hear point number four, Philip is called to lead an Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in verses 26 through 40. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. There was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along to the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came Up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So the angel of the Lord gives Philip an urgent calling. He gives him this urgent order. Notice things are going great in Samaria. The gospel spreading. And all of a sudden, Philip gets this revelation. Gets The Holy Spirit says, rise up and go toward the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to, to Gaza. So this is a desert place. He's thinking, why on earth am I going to go? Remember, he's leaving a heavily populated area, casting out demons, healing the sick. Simon the sorcerer comes. The apostles come, Peter and John. And... They're supporting his work that God has, has called him to do. They're all in it together. They're seeing many of the Samaritans, half-Jews, coming to Christ. And then all of a sudden, the Lord says, leave this place, and I want you to go to a deserted place. Now, 
what's interesting is that this urgent call that Philip had to respond to by the Holy Spirit was having to travel 50 miles to an unknown destination that's deserted and not knowing why. But without hesitation, this is what I love about Philip. Without hesitation, Philip goes. And who does that remind you of? Remind you of Abraham. Remember in Genesis chapter 22, verse 3, Abraham didn't know where he was going to go. He didn't know how this whole thing was going to turn out, but he went in obedience. So this journey of Philip, this would be a divine appointment that would lead to a converted Gentile who would then go to spread the gospel in Ethiopia. Isn't that amazing? So this phrase, go toward the south, this could also mean go at noons at a specific time, at a specific place, but not giving you a specific reason. Which leads me to another application that I want to share with you guys here on today's podcast. When you look at this and you see the obedience of Philip, and he's given this direct, urgent call by the Holy Spirit, what about you? Have you ever received something that urgent from the Holy Spirit and like Philip and like Abraham and many people before and after them, especially after Philip, of course, who responded in faith before God and said, I'll go. And seeing the amazing fruit that was, that was born out of obedience. What is God calling you, my friend, to do right now? Even as you're reading this and you're inspired as I am, like Philip and say, God, I want to be obedient like Philip is, you know, was here. So when I'm looking around and I'm looking at my prayer life and seeing what God has done in my life, saying, Lord, how am I going in faith? What am I allowing to, to hold me back, if you will, to doing greater things that you've called me to do? Then it says in verse 27, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, that's Kandaki, the queen of the Ethiopians. Okay, so remember the eunuch was a castrated male and this castrated male, this eunuch, controlled great wealth for a particular queen. And what's interesting is what we see this Ethiopian eunuch who's an official of Candace, he's probably, some commentators refer to him as a proselyte, some don't necessarily, but what I would say is he is a God-fearing follower who is coming from a place of worship probably in Jerusalem. So he's practicing his Judaism. So he's a practicing Jew, if you will. However, according to Leviticus 21 verse 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1, this eunuch was barred from joining the people of Israel. So that's important to note. Remember, there was still discrimination of, of proselytes, of people who were practicing Judaism, who were converted to Judaism. But as a eunuch, he could not, there were certain things he could not do even as a practicing Jew. Now, Luke refers to him as an official of Candace. So he was from the African empire of Mero, the Nubian empire, which had flourished since the 8th century BC. So this region was a great trade route for Rome. So it was very prosperous. Now, the Old Testament calls this location, it's known as Cush, and today is known as the southern region of Egypt or northern Sudan. So sadly, when you think of it today and also in context of, of end-time prophecy, the, this region particularly will be used in this Islamic, uh, Russian Islamic invasion against 
against uh, Israel in the Gog and Magog invasion in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But at this time, this eunuch gets saved, right? God sends Philip to this eunuch, and this eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, this Ethiopian, he's reading uh, a Greek manuscript, and it was customary. It was a customary practice to read it out loud, so that's what he's doing. The New King James Study Bible says, quote, the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia was ruled by a queen mother, or Candace, who ruled on behalf of her son, the king. Because the king was considered the child of the son, he was too holy to become involved in secular affairs. Therefore, his mother took over the responsibility. The eunuch in this passage was the minister of finance, a prominent position in the Ethiopian regime. He was responsible for distributing the funds of the treasury based on the desires of the queen mother, end quote. So again, very significant of, of which again, now is starting to make sense why the Holy Spirit gave an urgent call to Philip. And the Spirit said to Philip, verse 29, go over and join the chariot. So there was an ox-drawn wagon. So this encounter between Philip, the Jew, right, the Grecian Jew, and the eunuch from Africa is a beautiful picture of God's love for all mankind. Remember, God was already sending Philip to half-Jews, and now he sends him to a man completely different, totally different culture, which is another thing I love about Philip, because not as mentioned, not much is mentioned about him, but yet God uses him in these extraordinary ways, and he's able to you know, encounter these different diverse groups of people. And this conversation about the gospel of, of, of Jesus breaks down all racial, cultural, and social barriers. So this is a great passage sometimes to share with people as we're talking about racism. And verse 30, so Philip ran to him and he heard him reading. Now notice the question that Philip asked this man. He says, do you understand what you are reading? Literally, in the Greek, it means, do you know what you're learning? Do you have an, an intelligent comprehension of what you're reading? It's not an insult. He's not belittling the eunuch. Philip's response to the eunuch speaks to his obedience and respect for the Gentiles. He doesn't, he doesn't um, uh, put him down for, for acting as though he can understand, you know, the Holy Scriptures when he's not a, a, not a Jew. See, that's not how Philip responds. This is not the case. Remember, when you even look at Peter's initial response uh, to to. In Acts chapter 10, when the gospel is being presented to the people in Caesarea, that is not the case. Philip is not coming to him being resistant. Philip, more if you think about it, Philip responds in a greater way than Peter did initially to go to Cornelius' house. Philip is just, hey, do you know what you're reading, man? Let's let's have a conversation. And he just he's all in. He, he's, he just traveled 50 miles to get there. So that's a few days journey to get there at the exact point in time when he's able to encounter this eunuch. And of course, the eunuch is responding and he's very confused about with this passage he's reading in Isaiah 53. So no God-fearing Jew interpreted this passage in Isaiah 53 to be the Messiah. To them, the Messiah would come as a line of Judah, Genesis 49 verse 10, meaning he was a conqueror. The press of Romans would be destroyed by this Messiah to come. Therefore, the eunuch is rightly confused, and he has very little knowledge about who Jesus is. He doesn't even know that this passage is mentioning Jesus, and who knows what little he knows about Jesus Christ. Now, remember, he's traveling from Jerusalem, and Philip is coming from Samaria. 
and great work is being done there. So as he's heading back to, to, to Southern Africa, they have this encounter ship. And so God is going to use Philip to fill in the gaps for this eunuch. And he opens up his mouth, we're told in verse 35, and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. Isn't that amazing that Philip was able to use Isaiah 53 and already basically apologetically show him how Christ fulfilled this particular passage. So more than likely, Philip explains to the eunuch that Jesus is the suffering servant and points back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Psalm 22, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 42, and verses 1 all the way to chapter 44, verse 5, to reveal that he is the Messiah. So he's expounding on scripture to teach this eunuch the good news about Jesus, Luke says here, sharing about Jesus' teachings, his public death, his resurrection. And so as they're going along, a eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So the eunuch couldn't be circumcised, but he came to the realization that he could be baptized. So in one sense, to wash him from his Gentile impurities, but also more importantly, in a spiritual sense, hearing of Jesus's baptism, because we don't know all the details at Philip and how much time they had together, because there's a lot more. Remember, Luke is giving highlights. So there's probably a lot more that the Ethiopian, you know, shared with Philip and Philip shared with it with the Ethiopian. But when it comes to hearing about Jesus and his baptism and new converts and hearing about people being baptized, and I guarantee Philip probably shared with him about the Samaritans coming to Christ just a few days earlier. And so the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch was also fulfillment of Isaiah 56 verses three through five that specifically references eunuchs. Now, what's amazing is the great church father, uh, Irenaeus of Lyons, who ruled from AD 130 to 202, um, he mentions that the eunuch returned to his homeland and started a missionary outreach. Isn't that amazing? So when, when Philip comes upon the water, the spirit of the Lord, we're told in verse 39, carried Philip away, meaning he snatched him, he seized him suddenly. So when they came out of the water after he baptizes the eunuch, he's gone in a heartbeat. Now that was very common, by the way. When you look in the gospel, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures, in 1 Kings 18, verse 12, Ezekiel chapter 3, 12 through 14, taking away prophets suddenly occurred often. Now this term caught up or carried Philip away. This is the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. So we have the word harpazo, uh, and it, it describes the, the word we get in Latin and is rapturo, and it's, it's being taken to be snatched away suddenly. So it's an, it's, it's an indisputable act that confirmed that, that Philip truly was a prophet of God in the presence of, of the eunuch, which again inspired, I believe, the eunuch to go back to a place where, again, the, the woman, the queen that he, worship, that he served— whose son was the king, who was this brilliant, majestic deity, he's now coming with the message of the Messiah. And at some point, we don't know, but it seems like he left that position and he went and he started a great outreach to his people, a missionary outreach. Possibly he maybe stayed in his position and they allowed him to use a lot of his his prominence and his, and his the wealth that he made from the kingship to continue to advance the cause. We don't know. But it's just amazing to see specifically the Holy Spirit leading Philip to do this and how it causes a greater outreach in another region. Remember, Philip wasn't going there, but because he impacted the eunuch who went home, 
that eunuch who's going to his homeland can reach his people with the gospel. My friends, that is still the way through the power of the Holy Spirit that we do it today. When you and I take the time to invest in someone and they go to their back to their neighborhood, they go back to their workplace, they go back to their school, they go back to their country to, to share, to preach the gospel, that is how Philip did it and that's how we should be doing it today. And then notice what happened when Philip was caught up. He found himself all of a sudden an Azotos. And as he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip was transported. So remember, he was given a message, leave Samaria, and I want you to go to this particular area 50 miles away. He had to travel there. and He was obedient. And it's kind of in a funny sense when you think God says, okay, you need to get back. I have other plans for you, but... And, and this time I'm going to transport you quickly and thanks for your obedience. So kind of like a reward or something because you're thinking, why didn't you do that in the first place? But he transports uh, Philip, the Holy Spirit does, 20 to 25 miles away to Azotos or Ashdod, as mentioned in the Old Testament. Notice to preach the gospel until he arrived in Caesarea, which is the Roman capital of Judea. So he's going back to an outskirts of region where he was before, which he would remain for 20 years because later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, we are we, we hear about Philip with his daughters and God is using his daughters as prophetesses. So we'll touch on that a little bit later. So my friend, as we conclude this, this podcast, hopefully as you look at the life of Philip, there's several things here. Number one, he was a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. Number two, preach the gospel. Go make disciples. Be obedient when God is calling you to do something. Don't hesitate. Pray. You can contemplate. But don't hesitate when the hand of God is moving you to do something. There are so many other lessons that we can learn about Philip. But the last thing that I want to touch on, as I mentioned earlier, is just see how flexible he was. God was able to use Philip to impact different types of people at different moments of time in different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, different responses. And he was a man who who was studied because as he encountered the half-Jews, as he was there with Peter and John and they confronted Simon the Magi. And then you see him engaging the eunuch and baptizes him, an African. And then before you know it, he's out in the regions preaching the gospel outside of Judea, the capital of Rome. So I just pray that wherever you're at, that you won't look at your life and think less of yourself. But like Paul did, he boasts in his weaknesses. See, oftentimes we look at skill when we should be looking at the will. What I mean by that is you don't have to be all that talented for God to use you, but you have to submit your will to his will to be done. And I pray that you'll do that today. So thank you, my friends, for listening. Until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the word of God.